0: Hey, if if you're new uh, with us at Grace Point, uh, or you're joining us online for the first time, if you're in the room for the first time, maybe the first time in a long time, uh, we're in the middle of this series called Asking for a Friend. This series is completely random. There is no connection between last week and this week or next week. They're all completely random messages. Um, so if you if you have missed those first few parts and you want to, um, you can find those messages on our website gracepointtopeka.org or our YouTube page. Though we put those there for anybody for free forever, uh, if you want to do that, or you can find them on your favorite. Uh, podcast app if you're having trouble uh, falling asleep at night. Uh, There's plenty of content there to help you fall asleep. Um, But today, um, I want to jump into something. We are are not the current events church. In other words, I don't look what's happening in the news and figure out what I'm going to talk about on Sunday. But every now and then, there are cultural issues. There are things that happen in our world that intersect with Scripture. And any time that I believe Jesus said something about it, I feel like, I need to say something about it. So today, uh, we're going to talk about an issue that um, we're probably a little bit more familiar with over the last few years than we have, um, maybe more than any time in our our history. Um, It's it's an issue that you may not have a whole lot of experience with. Maybe you can't define it, um, but you know it when you see it. Like, it's obvious when you see it. It's called cancel culture or call out culture. All right, it's this, this idea that when, uh, when, when, when something happens in the greater culture, and it means different things to different people, right? It, it, it's, it, it brings to mind different things. Jeff Brody, who's a, a Canadian pastor, calls it a suitcase term, which just basically means that everybody throws a whole bunch of junk into it. Um, depending on um, you just, just how you view it, depending on your demographic, um, it's, it's, it's a suitcase. If you go searching for a definition in the dictionary, you will find a different definition in every dictionary. Okay. Um, And it's not just a suitcase term because it means so many things to so many different people. It's a suitcase term because it brings a lot of baggage with it. There's a lot of baggage when it comes to cancel culture. We all have our own filters. Well, have th- the way that we see the world. I'm a white, middle aged, middle class man that's gonna see cancel culture through the lens of my life, of my experiences, of what I see, just like you will. It, what, based on your age, your demographic, your background, your race, it's gonna look completely different to you than it will to me. That's part of what makes this a little awkward to talk about publicly and recording it to be online forever. Like this message might not age very well at all in the future, but I'm just dumb enough to talk about it publicly. Okay. Just, just dumb enough. So I want to talk about this today and I want to start as difficult as it is to define. I want to start with what I believe to be the best definition for this that I found this week. I didn't come up with this. This comes from good old dictionary.com. Okay. So here it is. Cancel culture refers to the popular practice of withdrawing support for or canceling public figures and companies after they have done or said something considered objectionable or offensive. So you got again, you might not be able to define it, but you know it when you see it. There's a company. Um, there's a celebrity. There's an athlete. Somebody in the public eye. Maybe it's a pastor. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm about to get canceled. I don't know but there's something that happens in the public eye and somebody thinks it's wrong morally, it's wrong ethically, it's objectionable. So they rally the troops. It's usually done online. The definition goes on to say cancel culture is generally discussed as being performed on social media in the form of group shaming. Okay, so social media is, is, is today's public square. It's where discourse happens. It's where conversation happens, and cancel culture is mainly online, but we also see it in individuals. You see it in um, families, maybe. You see it in neighborhoods. You see it in schools. Uh, You see it in churches. You see it in, in, in multiple places. And cancel culture is problematic for a couple reasons. It's awkward for a couple reasons. Because it's a suitcase term, because it means so many things to so many different people. One person might think canceling is speaking truth to injustice. Right? Like part of cancel culture is there's something wrong there. There's something that's not true there. Something needs to change there. And so you, you hold somebody accountable for something. And I actually think, I think there's, there's something good about that. That not, not everything about this is wrong. I, I would argue that as, as Christians, we believe that we are made in the image of God. And part of the image of God in us is when we see injustice, we want to speak to that. We want to say that's wrong. That's not true. That's not, that's not bringing about the shalom, the peace, the wholeness of God on this earth. So we want to we wanna stand for those who don't have a voice I want to speak up for those who are disenfranchised. We want to see people, cultures, systems, experience shalom, wholeness, completeness of God. That's part of the image of God in us. And speaking truth to injustice is a part of cancel culture. But it can also mean shaming someone by comparing their worst moment to your best. Right? We point at what somebody's doing at what somebody said, at what could be their worst moment. We don't know, but it could be their worst moment. And we say to ourselves, we say to a group that we have influence with, I would never do that. I would never say that. At least I wouldn't say it publicly like they did. Right? And we live in an era where everybody has a camera in their pocket and can pull it out at any moment and record my worst moment, put it online, and all of a sudden, I'm defined to those people by my worst moment. It's shaming someone by comparing their worst moment to your best, and that's problematic because we have people both sides of the spectrum in an increasingly polarized world, which means they're getting further and further away from each other. They look at the exact, exact same situation and one person's cancel culture is another person's holding accountable. Which, it, it, doesn't that kind of help explain some of the tension that we live with in our world? Now, I, I need to sit down for this part because I, I think we also need to acknowledge and own something about the church because it was actually Christians that were some of the earliest to cancel people. Um, you could say that the original cancel culture started in the church. I'll just give you a couple examples from my formative years. Those of you who are older than I am, you can go back further than this and come up with your own. But back in the 90s, a group of Christians who got together and said, we need to cancel Disney because they didn't, you know, they didn't like some of their practices. And I'm not saying they were right or wrong for that. I'm just saying that's what they were doing. They were canceling Disney. And then J.K. Rowling came out with the Harry Potter series and Christians jumped on that. And there's just over and over and over again, there were so many things growing up that I, I saw and I just thought the, the church is more known for what it's against. And in fact, it happens so much that SNL, Saturday Night Live, came out with a character. You remember this character? The church lady. Good morning, sinners, right? Enid Strict was her name. And every time there was a sketch on SNL, it was, it was about a, a topic, it was about a company, it was about a band, it was about a certain politician, you know, whatever it was that she disagreed with, that she didn't like, and just on and on and on, she went, what she was against, and by, you know, because she was speaking for God, it was like, God is against that as well. Now, was it funny? I thought it was funny, but I was also immature and young. It depends on who you are. Should we take our cues from SNL? No, we probably shouldn't. But I I pointed out just to show that it served like a mirror. It was a mirror. The the, the culture was holding up a mirror to the church and saying, do you see what you look like? It's a satirical look at the cancel culture that existed within the church. So I just think we need to recognize and admit that the church has spent, Big C Church, an inordinate amount of time trying to hold the world accountable, but hasn't always held itself accountable. Like, it shouldn't surprise us when the world acts worldly. It shouldn't surprise us when people who have nothing to do with righteousness are unrighteous, but the church is held to a higher standard. We should hold ourselves to a higher extent. And so we just need to admit the big C church in America has has kind of been an early adopter of cancel culture. So I'm not going to talk about that anymore, but why are we talking about this? Why, why is this important enough for me to take an entire week and focus on? And some of you don't think it is. I get that. But here's, here's why I think this is important. I'm going to say this, I'm going to let it sit for a second, and then I'm going to explain what I mean. Okay? Here's why I want to talk about this. Our access to power, influence, and judgment is faster than our access to knowledge and relationship. This is something that has shifted. If you're younger than 20, you have no idea what I'm talking about. If you're 20, 25 or older, you have a little bit of an idea. You have the ability right now, in this moment, to pull out your phone and record everything that I'm saying. You can post it online, you can tweet it, you can text it, you can WhatsApp it to anybody you want with your own thoughts, with your own judgment, with your own ideas and rally dozens, if not hundreds of people to your cause. That's power. That's influence. That's judgment. And all of that happens faster than knowledge because it takes time. It takes time to learn the nuances of an issue. Even in the 30 minutes I'm going to talk about this today, I will not cover every nuance of cancel culture. It's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. It takes way more than that to learn the ins and outs of these issues. Knowledge is slow. It's slow. And we don't actually know the people. We don't actually have the time to develop relationship with people that we cancel, that we judge, that we boycott, especially when it happens online. So knowledge and relationship takes time, but we have at our fingertips instant access to power, to influence, to judgment. Just give you one example. Um, Emmanuel Cafferty lived in San Diego, California. He worked for San Diego Gas and Electric and he was actually driving um, his company vehicle the day that this happened. And uh, at San Diego, so the windows are down, his arms out the window, you know, he's driving the company truck and um, he, he didn't even know it, but his hand was making the upside down okay sign, which many people believe is a nonverbal way of saying that you're, you know, you're a, you're a white supremacist, or at least you support white supremacy. He didn't know he was, he was doing this. He also didn't know that he was driving in a location where a Black Lives Matter protest had just ended. So he had no idea where he was. He was completely unaware of what he was doing with his hand. He didn't even know what it meant. And he was completely unaware that somebody had taken a picture, posted it on Twitter, And two hours after the post on Twitter happened, his manager showed up to his house, took away his company truck, and he was fired the next week. Now, two things you need to know. Emmanuel Cafferty is Hispanic. You putting that together? Okay, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I think it's pretty difficult to be a white supremacist if you're Hispanic. Second thing you need to know, the guy who took the picture and posted it online regrets ever doing it. He regrets ever doing it. He didn't want that to happen. But influence, power, and judgment are fast. Knowledge and relationship, they're slow. So part of the question here today is, are you moving at the speed of power, influence, and judgment? Or are you moving at the speed of knowledge? And relationship, fast isn't always best. It's not always best. And apart from that, like your life, my life, it's a platform. We talk about about social media platforms and how you can influence people. You're influencing someone, whether you're on social media or not. You're influencing someone, your family, your friends, your kids, your siblings, the people you work with, the people you teach, the people you coach. You may not like it, but we just can't escape the reality that your life is a platform. Your life is a platform. You're influencing someone. If you're a follower of Jesus, I would go one step further. Your life isn't just a platform. Your life's a ministry. Like you're a representative of Jesus. The New Testament says you're an ambassador to a king, not of this world and a kingdom not of this world. And the question is, how do you leverage that? How do you leverage your platform, your ministry? There's a lot of people out there wanna teach you how to build your platform, get more followers, get more likes, you know, expand your brand, you know, win friends and influence people, all that stuff. Lots of people can teach you how to do that. But what does it mean to leverage your ministry? What does it mean to leverage your platform in the midst of an increasingly polarized world where, if I'm honest, I just kind of want to stick my head in the sand. How do you do that? Well, I think we need to look to our leader. How did Jesus do it? How did Jesus do it? Have you ever thought about this? How did Jesus handle a polarized world where he could legitimately cancel anybody? Like, it's perfect, sinless, son of God, comes to earth, knew and understood the sin of everybody he came into contact with. Not just the outward stuff, the emotions, the thoughts, all that he, he could have canceled anyone at any time and been perfectly justified. And his his world was just as, if not more polarized than ours. You had Rome occupying his his homeland. I mean you Democracy, what? You had political polarization. You had the Pharisees teaching one thing. You had the Sadducees teaching another thing. You had the Zealots trying to overthrow Rome. You had the Essenes who were out in the desert, you know, trying to stay away from it all. And in the midst of all of that religious and cultural and political tension, Jesus shows up. And we're actually given a clue in the Gospel of John of how Jesus responded. Now, this isn't, this isn't um, prescriptive. This is descriptive, okay? So if you have a Bible or mobile device, find John. The Gospel of John, first chapter. Um, this, it's just an incredible picture. It's, it's something for us to aspire to, and, and it, it gives us some clues how Jesus handled this polarized world. How did he do this? And I think it gives us some clues that we can do it as well. So John... First chapter, starting in verse nine, says this, the true light, talking about Jesus, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So did you hear what John said? The one who created the world was not recognized by it. Like Jesus was the, the, the Messiah and the Jews whose prophets foretold of his coming didn't receive him. If you don't receive someone, you reject them, right? They canceled Jesus. They crucified him. Not everybody. Not everybody, John goes on to tell us, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God, which means we're all adopted We're all adopted into his family. Here's the part we're going to focus on. Christmas in July today, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Philip Yancey says, Jesus was God in a bod. Jesus was God with skin on. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. Here it is, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. That means Jesus wasn't 50% grace and 50% truth. He wasn't 40% grace and 60% truth one day and 60% grace and 40% truth on other days. He was 100% grace, 100% truth all the time, every single day. That's the model, that's the one we say we follow right? So said this before. I'll say it again. You probably lean one way or another. You've got grace people and you've got truth people. On their worst days, truth people look at grace people and see them as soft, maybe a little bit weak, right? Like people who don't really stand up for anything, people who don't stand up enough for anything. Grace people on their worst days look at truth people as harsh, and direct they lack emotional intelligence they think why do they say what they think all the time right grace people truth people so let's think about this let's think about this you find kind of where you are on the spectrum or maybe this will help you find where you are on the spectrum what does it look like to have truth without grace truth without grace looks like self righteous it looks self-righteous. I'm, I'm, truth is on my side. You need to bend to me because truth is on my side. I'm going to judge you. I'm not going to judge myself. You know people like this. You've worked with people like this. Maybe you live with people like this. Keep the elbows in today. Um, but we all we all get there. We all live there every now and then, or at least we visit there. And the danger of being in that place is that self-righteous people are rarely self-aware. They're rarely self-aware. They're hyper-aware of other people's faults. They're hyper-aware of what other people are doing, but they're not as aware of what they're doing. So truth without grace is self-righteous. It's fearful. It's fearful because if I don't say something, if I don't do something, something worse is gonna happen to them. I, I have to speak truth to, to save that person from something where if I don't, who will? It's fearful. Truth without grace is hurtful. It's hurtful in a couple ways. It can be hurtful in tone. It can be hurtful in language, just be cutting or blunt. But it could also be, you know, when people speak truth without grace, that's usually because that's happened to them. That's how my dad treated me. That's how my mom talked to me. And they're just perpetuating that hurt. So you have a bad day at home, you take it out at work. Have a bad day at work, you take it out on your kids it just perpetuates the hurt. Truth without grace can be hypocritical. There's something hypocritical about giving yourself a lot of grace, but refusing to give it to anybody else. Like, like I'm going to call you out, but I'm not going to allow you to call me out. Truth without grace is hypocritical and truth without grace is about power and control. It's about power and control. I don't like what you're doing. I don't like what you're thinking. I, I, I'm uncomfortable with what you're doing. I'm uncomfortable with what you're thinking. So I'm going to leverage the power of truth to try and control you, to try and control the narrative, to power up, to control your behavior. It's about power and control. And I, listen, all the truth people are going, yeah, but what about this? What about this? What? About, I get it. I'll get to the grace without truth people in a second, but let's just sit here for a minute, okay? The question is, Are you standing with truth or are you standing with people? Are you for truth or are you for people? If you're all all truth and no grace, yeah, sure. You're standing for what's right. But at the end of the day, you're actually alienating people that Jesus loves. You're alienating. Are are you making a point? Are you making a difference? Because I see a whole lot of people just trying to make points. And I'll tell you what, you're not making any difference because you're all truth. No grace. It's what you get. Adam Grant wrote a great book called Think Again. The subtitle is The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. (laughs) Here's, Here's just one quote from his book. We all have blind spots in our knowledge and opinions. Man, I wish everybody in America could read this. We all have blind spots on our knowledge and opinions. The bad news is that we can leave, that can leave us blind to our blindness, which gives us false confidence in our judgment and prevents us from rethinking. Truth without grace, it leaves us blind to our blindness. That's a dangerous place to be. Truth without grace. What about grace without truth? What does grace without truth look like? Well, it actually looks the exact same. Grace without truth is self-righteous. Because I'm not one of those hurtful people. I, I I care about people more than those truth people. I'm gonna treat them better. That's self-righteous. Can creep in. Grace without truth is fearful because I know what I should say, but I'm afraid they won't like it. I'm afraid they won't like me, and I'm not willing to venture into those unknown waters. It's fearful. Grace without truth can be hurtful. I love you. I got grace for you, but not enough to tell you the truth. Grace without truth can be hypocritical. Saying you care about someone but not enough to tell them the truth, that's hypocritical. And grace without truth is about power and control because I don't know what's going to happen on the other side of a speaking truth. I don't know what's going to happen and I want to control the narrative. I want to control everybody around me by keeping everybody around me happy. So, so grace without truth rarely alienates other people, but it alienates the truth. It isolates the truth. They create a life where, where they stand with everything or everyone, but they don't really stand for anything because the truth doesn't ever actually work itself out in their life. So go back to Jesus. How did he do this? How? how Not, not, not grace and truth in balance, but in perfect tension, 100% grace, 100% truth at the same time. And it goes back to, it's really the question that I want to try and ask today. Who would Jesus cancel? Who would Jesus cancel? The perfect, sinless Son of God had the right, had the ability, had the truth, had the knowledge to cancel anybody he wanted to, knew everybody's history, what they did, what they thought, how they treated people. Who was Jesus most interested in canceling? And you know the answer. But listen to what Paul has to say about this. This is true of you if you're a follower of Jesus. You were dead. You were dead. Because of your sins, because your sinful nature was not yet cut away, it is sin that separates us from God. We were dead in sin, and when that was true, then God made you alive with Christ. See, Christians are not bad people who have been made good. Christians are dead people who have been made alive. Big difference. Big difference. How did he do this? He forgave all our sins. How did he do that? How did he bridge that chasm? He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Church, Jesus could have canceled anyone he wanted, but he chose to cancel sin. He, we deserved to be canceled We deserve to be ignored, to boycott, to be boycotted, to be judged and thrown out. Jesus chose to cancel our sin instead. He made a way for us to be adopted. Adopted into God's family. He responded with 100% grace and 100% truth. If you want to know what that looks like, you just look at the cross. The cross is the perfect blend of grace and truth. Jesus sacrificed himself because of the truth of sin. Sin deserves death. That's true. It just is. Like it, don't like it, whatever. It's true. Jesus sacrificed himself because of of the truth of sin, the reality of sin, and he sacrificed himself because of the reality of grace. He decided to give us something good that we didn't deserve. Grace truth. What does 100% grace, 100% truth look like in our lives? Let me give it my best shot. Grace with truth looks like accountability. It looks like accountability. Jesus knew sin had to be punished. He had the integrity to say sin has to be punished. It creates a debt that must be paid and I'm willing to pay it. Grace with truth looks like conversations and relationships where we hold each other accountable to truth And we also open ourselves up to be held accountable to truth. Accountability, integrity. It looks like forgiveness. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He forgave. That's what it looks like for you and me to live in relationship with sinful, imperfect people. I'm sorry. I know I heard you and I forgive you. I'm sorry. I know I heard you and I forgive you. Looks like forgiveness grace with truth lived out in our lives, it looks like redemption. Can you redeem anybody? It's no. The answer is no. <laughs> that was right on the T. No, you can't. But can you give someone a second chance? He's the God of second chances. And if he's given us a second chance, we, that's the platform we should stand on. If God gives us a second chance, why wouldn't we? If God gives us the opportunity for redemption, why wouldn't we do the same for others relationally? Redemption and grace with truth is confidence in Jesus. I don't need to control other people. I don't need to control outcomes. I, I trust Jesus has taken care of that. I'm confident he's better at controlling outcomes than I am. I'm confident in that. Do I always live like that? Man, I wish I could say I did. But I'm confident that he's better at outcomes than I am. So that's, that's what 100% grace and 100% truth can look like. Truth is most powerful when it's filled with grace. Isn't it true? It's easier to hear truth from people when they wrap it in grace. And, 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 and grace is most powerful when it's filled with truth. Give me the full, unhindered unreserved truth and do it with grace. Serve it on a platter of grace. What do you do with this? What do you do with this? Here's our homework. If you want some homework, here it is. I'd love to say this is just your homework for this week, but my guess is you'll be perfecting this for the rest of your life, right? Here's your homework. If you're a truth person, take a step towards grace. Take a step towards grace. When you speak to your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, your friends, your boss, speak truth with grace. And I know some of you, you're so far over on the truth side that it looks like a giant leap for mankind to get over to the grace side, right? Going back to what we said last week, the very same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Maybe you should ask him, to help you with the grace part. Maybe you should open your heart to the grace part. And then if you're a truth person, no, I'm sorry, if you're a grace person, take a step towards truth. When you're given the opportunity to speak truth, when you're given the opportunity to stand for something, when you know it's right, when you know it's true, and you're afraid to speak, take a step. Take a step towards truth. You've already got the grace part figured out. Step into truth. See, how do you, how does, how does a a couple, how does a family, how does a church, how does a community, how does a culture make progress on difficult, nuanced, well-defended but undefined issues? How do you make progress on issues like race and climate change and economic justice and politics and human sexuality? How do, you, how, do you, how do you make progress? How do you enter into conversations with people who agree with you on that and disagree with you on that? How do you do that? If you're a follower of Jesus, the leader and forgiver of your life did it with grace and truth. Full on grace, full on truth. I think we would do well to follow him we would do well to follow the example that he set for us. And, and it's what I want for you. It's what I want for me. It's what I want for us as a church to be the kind of people who, lived in, who, who live in a polarized world. It's not going away anytime soon. But we live in a polarized world. We, 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 we raise families. We raise kids. We have a marriage. We have a job. We have work in a polarized world. But we use our platform We use the ministry, we use the stuff that Jesus has put in our hands to wave the banner of full-on grace and full-on truth. It's possible. We don't have to buy the lie that you have to be one or the other. Everything else is polarized. Jesus says, nope, actually, you can be both. You can be full-on grace and full-on truth. And here's the beautiful part about it. You can't do that on your own you need people around you. I need you. You need me and we need each other to be full on grace and full on truth. That's the body of Christ. So you got your homework? Good luck with it. (laughs) If you're a grace person, take a step towards truth. If you're a truth person, take a step towards grace. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, this is such, it's so much more difficult for, for us to walk out of these doors and do than it is for me to sit up here and to say this. Um, but God, I believe that through your spirit, because of your word, because of the, 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 the God-man Jesus who came to this earth, who had every right, every ability, every opportunity to ignore, to judge, to chastise, to, to cast out anybody and everybody he came into contact with. And yet he chose to respond with grace and truth. I think about the woman caught in adultery. I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. Just this, this, this complete 100% grace and 100% truth. Jesus, would you help me? Would you help us to be the kind of people who walk into a, a polarized world, who walk into a place that's just, it's death and it's destruction. It's, it's just a mess. But it's the same kind of mess that you stepped into 2,000 years ago. God, would you help us to be the kind of people who do this in our lives, who look after this in our lives? Would you help us to be the kind of people who do this in community? It's not just about who we are as an individual, but it's about who we're connected to and what we're learning, what you're, what you're speaking to us through those through that community. And God, in the end, this is, this is ultimately about you and your kingdom, about your will, about bringing bits and pieces of it to this planet. It's about your kingdom not ours. It's about your will, not ours. So Jesus, would you help us to pursue this as we pursue you? And in the end, we'll give you the praise because you're the one who deserves it. And I ask it all, I pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for being here today. Have a wonderful, wonderful week.